This is Chris Sullivan, and you are listening to the Angry Millennial Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the Angry Millennial Podcast with your host, Jose Rosado, and co-host, Stevie Chris, where we talk to creatives and entrepreneurs from all walks of life and passions about the creative lifestyle, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Be sure to check out our site, theangrymillennialshow.com, and sign up for our newsletter to be eligible for prizes and giveaways, as well as stay up to date with new shows and upcoming guests. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, who doesn't love really well-designed photography clothing? Check out clickgearclothing.com, a lifestyle for urban photographers. All Angry Millennial listeners can use coupon code ANGRYPHOTO to receive 20% off any order. And the first three people who sign up for our newsletter after the show will get a free $25 gift card. Now guys, be sure to also check them out on Instagram at clickgearclothingltd. So we're here today with Steve Lubetkin, uh, fellow podcaster and author of The Business of Podcasting. So how are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing very How's well. How's it going? Good to be with you guys. And I must say, we are recording today out of Steve's amazing studio in New Jersey. And uh, it's it's definitely quite an experience. I mean, I know Stevie's use is kind of stuff. Brings, brings me mean, back. Yeah, for me, it's very... I like, I like the smell of sound foam. <laughs> I like I like the... Uh, the window there. You we know. have the uh, lights and the teleprompter turned off today. But the <laughs> studio is equipped for video. Yeah. And uh, the shout out goes to my brand new son-in-law, Tom Gozik, who is a, a fabulous commercial contractor and uh, helped me reimagine what was a basement playroom mm-hmm. into a fully functional uh, audio and video ah, production nice. studio. So and it's basically still a playroom, but... Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. my playroom yeah, exactly there you go it's uh it was a silver lining kind of thing because you said it was a, a flood right well we the room when we moved in was unfinished it's mm-hmm. a basement of a house the house was built in the 60s and um we put down a very very cheap indoor outdoor carpeting and mm-hmm. made it and some very cheap wood panel walls and made it into oh, sort of a, a playroom this. for my daughters yeah. when they were much mm-hmm. younger and uh, when we did that, I boxed off an area of the basement as an office for myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as an office to do paperwork and work on the computer and maybe do conference calls. Mm-hmm. But uh, what happened was when my uh, career morphed into being a professional podcaster, mm-hmm. uh, the space was no longer exactly right for it, but yeah. I made do. Mm-hmm. And the the boxed-in office became sort of a production studio, but I didn't have the kind of functionality that we have now. And what happened was the um, in this part of New Jersey, basements need a sump pump that goes mm-hmm. on periodically yeah. to drain the water mm-hmm. out of the French drain. And you have to keep on your calendar <laughs> a date to make sure that you replace the sump pump every seven years or so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I kind of went past the seven-year date, and the sump pump was not completely failed, but was failing. Right. And uh, some water came into the basement during a heavy rainstorm and got the rug wet. It wasn't smelly or dirty or right, anything like yeah, that, yeah. but it was just, it started to look cheesy. Yeah. And so I said to Tom, who's now my son-in-law, my daughter and Tom got married this past Sunday, the 15th. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Congratulations, guys. Um, and I said to Tom, what should I do to fix this problem? And he said, well, to be honest, you should really gut it and start from scratch. Right. <laughs> and that uh, we gave him the, the brief and he literally... Uh, brought to reality what I imagined 
the space could be. And so nice. we have uh, drywall construction with uh, double panes of homosote soundproofing on the master control room. We have double pane glass. We have some sound absorbing foam. We have um, built-in green screen. Obviously, your listeners can't see all of this, yes. yeah. but we'll give you a picture you can share with. Oh, them on definitely, your definitely. I mean, this is you know. I, I know when you when we started talking and you were talking to our producer Jessica, um, you had sent the picture. And right, you're like, that's oh, right. I did. I can you can you can use our space. And I go, <laughs> yeah, we're not using Stevie's apartment. We're going there. <laughs> I was like, we're going to uh, to New Jersey. I'm glad I to have that. you here. Yeah, no, it's it's a great space. And um, you know, so I know you mentioned a little bit about when you when you got real serious about podcasting. So we we spoke a little before the show um, about. Oddly enough, our, our mutual uh, time in New Jersey, uh, mm. and but why don't you tell us about kind of what you were doing in the corporate world and how you transitioned? Sure, I, I often tell people that I started podcasting when I was a teenager, which was many years ago. It wasn't four score and seven years ago, but I figured <laughs> it out. It was two score and five years ago. <laughs> um, I, I got bitten by the radio bug as a teenager. My dad worked at Fort Monmouth, which mm-hmm. I know Jose's familiar with in central New Jersey. And he got me into the um, training area where the um, Signal Corps, which was based at Fort Monmouth, taught military personnel how to do things like TV production and radio production. Mm-hmm. They had a whole mock-up studio of a radio station to teach the armed forces broadcasters. Wow. And I got to spend an afternoon there as a teenager learning how to queue up records and play commercials off of tape cartridges and work the board. And from that moment on, all I wanted to do was be on the radio. And so I set up in my basement at my parents' house, a little mock studio, and I made what I call pretend radio shows with with the reel-to-reel tape recorder that Jose took a picture of um, and uh, a turntable and a microphone. And then I played them for my best friend because – the distribution channels at the time were limited. <laughs> right. There was no internet. <laughs> right. Um, and so we had a lot of fun listening to my pretend radio shows. And, of course, the minute I arrived at college, um, the first place I headed was to the college radio station. And uh, they said, well, we can put you on the air if you go and study for and obtain the FCC license. And so that was the big deal of the time. We went out and it was a field trip up to uh, New York City to the mm-hmm. FCC office on VC Street. Uh, to go take the uh, third class radio telephone license and the basic broadcast endorsement, which was the hard part, was yeah. the element nine of the exam. Wow. And uh, <laughs> so we actually had to pass that. And that was so we could sign the transmitter log and be official and all of that stuff. But uh, once I got that, I was on the air and uh, doing a radio show on the college radio station. And that led to commercial radio. Right. And, um, you know, you can be on the radio or you can buy groceries, but you usually can't do both. <laughs> and so I ended up, um, you know, on the outside of radio looking in. I um, I needed to make a living. And right. I ended up, after stints in radio and print journalism, going to work for a large company doing public relations because the typical way that they hired public relations people was they would hire former reporters. Mm-hmm. who had covered them. Right. So I was hired. Um, I was very lucky to uh, get a job offer from the railroad. I went to work for Conrail when it was a real railroad and uh, did public relations for them for almost 10 years uh, and then went into the financial services industry and uh, ended my corporate career working for a large commercial bank mm-hmm. in New Jersey, which um, went through a couple of bank mergers and then um, invited me out the door at the end of one of the mergers. At that point, you know, I had been in corporate PR for about 30 years and I was looking for the next chapter. Right. Um, 
so I started looking into possibly becoming a public relations consultant and doing it on my own. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit of a challenge. It's a very crowded field. There are a lot of very senior public relations people out there fighting for smaller and smaller pieces of the same pie. And most of those pieces are going to very large multinational agencies that are owned by very large advertising and PR networks. Right. And so that didn't seem to be a real good way to differentiate myself. And right around that time, my wife said to me, with all of your radio background, I heard this thing on NPR about podcasting. You should be doing <laughs> podcasting. And now, mind you, this is 2004? 2004, 2005 timeframe. Yeah. And I started listening to what people were producing as podcasts. And frankly, it, it took me back to my radio days. It reminded me very much of what I heard from some of the people I worked with at the college radio station. May people, I ask, can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. When you did it at home and you were a kid, were you playing both sides of the interview? Like you, you would ask well, questions in the, in the answer. Well, you know, I was doing DJ shows. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like an interview oh, show. Oh, okay, okay. I would announce the record and, Kind of like Casey Kasem type Exactly, stuff. that oh, kind okay. of thing. Like a, and, like a VJ? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was just more interactive. Instead of just playing music in your room, you really got into it. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, and I, I recorded uh, commercials off of regular radio and interspersed them between the really? songs. Really? <laughs> but it was a very laborious process right. because, you know, you record one song, you stop the tape, right. you put the next one on. I didn't have two turntables. I didn't have a mixing board to, right. to segue between records. So it this, was, this is what you needed to do back then, though. Yeah, I mean, was, yeah. that was, I didn't know I was preparing for a career. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but now as I look back, it's it's clearer to me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wish I, I wish I had move. those same things growing up. I, I did not. But, yeah, but you don't I, you don't get those kind of stories as much anymore. I mean, yeah. like you said, you started out, you know, doing doing that in your bedroom for a radio. Now you you hear those kind of stories less and less because I mean it's so accessible. If you want to have a podcast. It, I mean, you the get barriers, a microphone and yeah, yeah the turn barriers the to entry, on, right? the, the, yeah. the technology, the, the technology that we live with today, opens so many more doors for mm-hmm. people that you know they they don't have the same kind of struggle. If you want to do that kind mm-hmm. of thing today, you can do it digitally and right. do it and sound very professional. Right. Or even um, like YouTube is big. You know? Oh yeah. People just just started an account and, and and again the barriers to entry in video. I mean years mm-hmm. ago. I, I, during my corporate career, there was a time when we were producing an event for the company at which I was advocating that they use computer-generated presentation graphics to illustrate the products that we were launching at mm-hmm. this big press conference. That's called PowerPoint, right? <laughs> today, it's called, today it's called PowerPoint. Back then... Today it's called an app on your phone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, and this is the 1980s, we had to go to a production company in New York City that produced the graphics on a on you know, slides, gigantic like on slides. a gigantic mini computer type <laughs> device, and then they had to actually bring their equipment to the site of the presentation and run it. Wow! Um, they would give, and, and the the funny part was they they sold it as though it was very easy to use. No, it wasn't. They handed <laughs> they handed the speaker the remote control from a, an old Kodak carousel projector, which mm-hmm. at the time was what most presenters were familiar right. with, yeah. click and drop mm-hmm. slides. And they said, all you have to do is push the forward button and the slides will advance, just like if you're <laughs> using a carousel. What they didn't tell the presenter was the remote wasn't doing anything except blinking a light backstage <laughs> where their operator was pushing the button to advance the slide. Wow. Yeah. So, so I mean, we've come a long, long way yes, in terms of yes, the technologies. Have you uh, have you seen? There's this there's this video online. I've seen two people do it, but one guy it was pretty pretty accurate. He recorded himself uh, 
asking his future self questions yes. along with reactions. Yes, I, I saw that. And then he has like the 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 brown kind of jack jacket on with elbow patches and I, I maybe we're talking about two different videos, but I saw one where he was he he had actual video of himself as when a he was child 12. answering yes, questions. That's one guy. He okay. was an older one. So that's there's the one, one now where it's a, a young bearded gentleman okay. in the seventies and he's seventeen. I think he just graduated high school and he did this. He literally had himself in a, on like a black backdrop, very, very inside the actor's studio, if you will. Right. right. And uh, and then recorded him now sitting in a chair ac- across from himself, um, answering these questions. And it's absolutely hysterical. And it was much like the other guy. The other guy, I think, was a uh, he was an illustrator, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And then this guy, yeah, man, what did he do? I honestly can't remember off the top of my head. But he, uh, it was different, but it was interesting because, you know, he's sitting there going, oh, what'd you do? I wrote a book. I wrote a novel. Like I did all this stuff and, oh, are you, are you rich? And the guy just starts laughing, you know, but it was, it was pretty funny. The way the technology brings out the creativity right. is always exciting. Yeah. And, um, and that's what I really liked about it is, um, I realized this could be an important way for companies and organizations mm-hmm. to communicate mm-hmm. to audiences that, don't want to read a long white paper. They don't want right. to watch a commercial. Um, you know, it's like radio. It's like listening to a conversation. Mm-hmm. And it it will work, but it has to sound good. It yeah. has to sound yeah. as good as, as close as possible to the gold standard kind of quality of like national public radio right. or the BBC or something like that. Right. So it, it means learning how to use the equipment properly. Mm-hmm. It means learning how to normalize the, the audio levels and edit Edit the audio, for heaven's sakes. Mm-hmm. Editing the audio, which <laughs> you know, I, I, I listen to. Nightmares. I listened to one podcast early on, which just blew me away. Someone was very knowledgeable about the subject matter, and halfway through the podcast, suddenly said, "Sweetie, please be quiet. I'm I'm doing my podcast." And I thought, <laughs> you know, that could have been edited out. Yeah. Um. And so, you know, it it's not live radio. It can be edited, um, and it and it should sound really top-notch. And that, yeah. that's what I set out to do. So I had to relearn all the skills that I knew from my radio days back mm-hmm. in the 1970s, which, as I told Jose earlier, you know, involved editing <clears throat> magnetic recording tape using yeah. a grease pencil to mark <laughs> the spot and a razor blade to cut it and remove the part that I wanted to take yeah. out. And it sounded like his own personal <clears throat> Vietnam. He was yeah. telling me yeah. the story, and I'm if just you like... Don't, <laughs> if you don't do it right, you're kind of screwed. Right, you know? yeah. Being in podcasting as long as you have been, well, it's been a long time. I've been there ten, since the ten dawn years, of the era. Show. Ten years now, nine uh, years, almost eleven. We'll be eleven years in December. Okay, so do you think there's still kind of a stigma coming from the radio industry? Because I know um, a buddy of mine. He's a DJ up in Albany. He has great show. He was with uh, ninety-two-three, uh, the Edge. I think he has his he has his own show. I think it's a country channel, but he's it's great. And being in there, seeing him in the studio doing his thing it's like an art form in itself absolutely it's even now with like all the digital stuff just it's crazy but i know we talked a few times when i was with him and he kind of mocked podcasting a bit and i I know i think i think it was mark maron mm-hmm. uh, one of a few of his episodes a lot of people you know give him shit because they're like dude you do a podcast who does that anymore but do you think what kind of do you think there's still like a stigma behind it? No, I don't think there ever was a stigma. I think what you have, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, and you have this any time a disruptive technology comes along, yeah, yeah, you have people who are fearful 
mm-hmm. of that technology. Right. You have, you know, we have the song Video Killed the Radio Star. <laughs> you have, you know, television's going to be the death of uh, radio. Yeah. yeah radio yeah, hasn't yeah. gone away. Podcasting is going to be the death of radio. Radio is still not going yeah. away. Yeah. 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 Um, on the other hand, there are really good reasons why radio and podcasting work very well together because a lot yeah. of the skills that people need to produce good radio are directly applicable to producing good podcasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, it's for the radio broadcasters who embrace it, like Mark Marin and mm-hmm. like the people at NPR who produce Serial right. and the other podcasts that they produce – um, it's a very good channel for them to distribute stuff yeah. that they may not have room for on on the broadcast airwaves. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's it's another tool. Exactly. Yeah, it's just yeah. another vehicle and people kind of, you know, digest it through and that kind of thing. And, and what happens is the the appetite for content expands right. rather than shifting from one to the other. Yeah. You just get more people mm-hmm. interested in what's going on and looking – you know, people are passionately interested in some very niche podcasts. Right. Mm-hmm. And they'll listen to that podcast and, and they'll be upset if they miss a week. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely noticed that. I mean, when we when we started this, and mind you, we're not talking a decade here. Uh it, it <laughs> you will was, be soon. Yeah, exactly. They um they were people were saying, Oh, well, are you in the beginning there, are you on iTunes? And this was like two days after I launched the site, and I go, No, not yet. Um, you know, we will be though. And and they literally were like, well, that's great, but I'll wait till that. And I was shocked. And I and I knew in the beginning I wanted to. I had like at that time I think we had like five episodes in the can and like two on the site. And um, I was sitting there going, well, okay, well, maybe we should expedite the timeline. And I didn't. I, I from everything I researched at that time was like you shouldn't even submit until you've had like five or six episodes, so they can really kind of get an idea of what you're going for. Um, and then I had other friends who told me I submitted with one episode and I got on. So you're, you know, so I did it and we got on there and it was, like you said, it was crazy. People were saying, oh, well, I only do SoundCloud or I prefer Stitcher or, you know, and in reality, it's all the same thing. It's just little different ways you like, uh, listening to it and that kind of thing. And people are really fanatical about it. I think the key is to make sure that people know that it's available and people will choose the way they want to Mm -hmm. access it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also uh, I'm reminded from your story uh, of my my daughter's mantra. She's a photographer, mm-hmm. and she often says, you know, sometimes when she's asked to do something and she's not sure about it, she'll just do it. And uh, her her motto is "fake it until you make it." <laughs> and right. you know, and I do the same thing too. Sometimes, you know, yeah. if people ask me, "Can you do X Y Z?" and I say, "Yes, of course." And then I come home and Google it. Right, and we right. figure out how to do yeah. it. Um, and, and I don't know if you know Peter Shankman, who is one of the uh, uber gods of uh, social media mm-hmm. and uh, just developing things that have made him wildly successful without seeming to work too hard at it. <laughs> uh, some years ago, Peter tells the story of, of one of his first entrepreneurial efforts where uh, when the movie Titanic came out mm-hmm. – and he was so tired of hearing from people about the movie Titanic. He went out and printed up 500 T-shirts that said, with a picture of the boat going down, and, and the, the caption said, it sank, get over it. <laughs> and he went out to Times Square, and he sold them out in an hour. And someone who bought the shirt in Times Square had a friend who was a reporter at USA Today mm-hmm. and said, look at this great shirt. Right. And the USA Today reporter calls Peter and says, um, I'm doing a story on your Shirts. Wow. <laughs> and she says to him, you are selling them online, aren't you? And he's, and he's 
mimicking his the look on his face, which is, oh, crap, I better go do this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> While he's on the phone with the reporter, he says, I built a website to sell the shirts. Yeah. He said, four o'clock the next morning, the newspaper came out. Five o'clock the next morning, my, my web host called me up and said, what did you do on your website? You're crashing our servers. Wow. Because everybody wanted to buy the shirt. Yeah. So um, you just never know what's going to go viral or, mm-hmm. you know, pique people's interest. Yeah. No, it's 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 true. I mean, um, I'm sure you know the name uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Oh, sure. So, you know, his whole thing when he was an early adopter, much like you, um, and the biggest one that he went on was YouTube. So when YouTube came out, he made his his wine TV and and he he tells the story of how you have to do it and you have to prepare to do it for a while before anyone cares. It the the, the phrase I hear most often is the long tail phenomenon of podcasting, which means, you know, it's going to take a while. And all of a sudden that episode you recorded six months ago is going to start getting hits. Right. Yeah. Now. Yeah. It's it's Um, like any, any creative career, really. It's like musicians are like, we're the 10 year overnight success story. Exactly. Like exactly. Or or you hear the meme constantly. Yeah. The 10,000 hours of practice that you need before you actually Mm -hmm. know what you're doing at whatever it is you're doing. Right. Yeah. Or even like, you know, when, when I had, I mean, we had um, a friend of mine, Corin Prescott on recently, and he's a photographer who actually was a real big push uh, for me to do this. And I, of course, like most people could name any amount of excuses and stuff like that. And, and he said, well, just do it. And I was like, well, it's not that he could just do it. And he goes, he said the same thing. He goes, if let's just say you do five episodes, if you do five episodes and never do it again, you at least did five episodes. That's cool. You did something. You know, um, and that's always the thing that I try to do with like my writing and photography is like always be creating because you know what, even if, you know, you get to the point where you say, you know what, I'm frustrated or I don't know what to do. I mean, you can look back at like an entire career, you know, or a catalog of work that people um, all of a sudden will really appreciate. I used to write blog posts and no one would read and I kept doing it. And then one day I got a really great message from a complete stranger on Facebook and said, um, I've been having a really hard time lately with my, my, my work and my photography, uh, and I came across your blog, and I, I, gotta, I just want to say thank you, because I read a lot of your articles, and he was going back like a year you know, before, and was saying like, you know, they were really helpful for me during this rough time. And um, to me, that was all I needed to hear. That was one person, and it, it completely justified. It can make you know, a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, my, my daughter and I went to a... Uh, a photo presentation mm-hmm. at the Pen and Pencil Club, the legendary uh, drinking spot for uh, journalists in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we Set on the, uh, Walnut? Latimer Street. Latimer, okay. Latimer yeah. between um, Locust and whatever comes after Locust. Um, so, yeah, right around the center Between City 15th area. and 16th. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. And um, the fellow who was presenting, Brad Now, is a, a former uh, shooter for the uh, Philadelphia Daily News and the Inquirer. He also shoots for the Comcast Sports Network, mm-hmm. uh, video and stills. And, you know, he, he's very much into film photography. He carries a Leica with him all the time. Nice. And uh, he made that same point. You know, you have to always be shooting. And mm-hmm. afterwards, we were chatting with him because – Shelley was very, you know, inspired by his work mm-hmm. to, to get back to her roots. And, right. and she went to the same school as your friend Colin, uh, Antonelli, well, right. Antonelli Institute right. of Photography mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. Um, you know, and, and his attitude was, you know, always have your camera with you. And when you see something, 
when you're driving, stop and take the picture. Don't, mm-hmm. don't make a note to go back, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's the same way about everything. And, um, you know, I always have recording gear with me. I always have cameras with me, video cameras, so that if something comes up, I'm, I'm there. I'm ready to true, shoot. True yeah, journalist. If I can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. True. You um, know, um, so, so that makes, brings up a good point. So I know um, right now you partnered with Donna Papacosta? Papacosta. Papacosta. Yeah. Close. Um, of, uh, you know, and you guys actually co-authored the book, The Business of Podcasting. That's right. And I know you said that you guys were friends online for a long time and finally met at a, uh, a conference, right? We were at the New Communications Forum conference, which was mm-hmm. held in... Um, up in uh, Napa Valley in California oh, nice. in about 2007 or 8. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a conference produced by a group that we're both members of called the Society for New Communications Research. It's a sort of a think tank for new technologies and things. There are some, mm. a number of very, very well-known academics are involved in mm-hmm. it. A number of the um, people who are regarded as the uh, seminal thinkers in social media are members of it, people like Chris Brogan, mm. uh, Shell Israel, who was the author of the new book, Lethal Generosity. He also wrote a couple of books with Robert Scoble um, about uh, how social media and new technologies are invading everything that people do. Right. Um, people like um, Brian Solis, who's also one of the th- leading thinkers in the field. Um, and so, you know, Donna and I had had met online. We chatted through, you know, email and other mediums uh, over the years and then uh, met at the conference. And then about a year and a half ago, Donna called me and said, I have this idea for a book, but I think we should write it together. And she described it to me. And it was exactly the kind of thing that I was thinking about Mm -hmm. because the two of us have gone in a different direction with podcasting than most of the people who think they're going to make money at podcasting. Mm -hmm. And the difference is this. Many people think that you build a business by a podcasting business by creating a, a character or a voice or you know a content piece mm-hmm. and selling the hell out of it to get a lot of people listening and then right. you sell advertising space right. on your mm-hmm. podcast and that works at the very very high end of the market at right. the Mark Marin level right. at the um you know the the NPR level mm-hmm. and um who's the guy who did the office uh, Ricky Gervais mm-hmm. Those people have built-in audiences because they have media audiences who are following them over to podcasts. Right, right. For the average podcaster who's starting out themselves in their basement or their bedroom, uh, building that size audience that advertisers are interested in is problematic. Yeah. You know, even if you get 500 or 1,000 downloads for a podcast, not enough for most advertisers to want to pay Right, take notice, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so what Donna and I have done, and we've tried all those different approaches uh, as we both got into podcasting, what we've done is build podcasting consulting practices where we provide podcasting production services mm. to clients right. who want to do podcasts but don't want to develop the expertise in-house. Right. For most corporations, it doesn't make a lot of sense to hire a podcaster full-time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what they tend to do is they tend to throw those duties along with the video production duties on the intern, <laughs> either on, either on the intern who doesn't have the perspective and the experience to understand the business adequately, right? 
or they throw it to the IT people. Mm -hmm. And the information technology people are expected to do podcasting and video production in addition to upgrade my computer to Windows 10, <laughs> put a new mouse on my computer. Right. Sounds my like the most interesting podcast I've ever heard. The, the, yeah. the problem becomes, you know, they have to triage their work. And what, yeah. gets, what gets lost is the podcasting and the video. Of They'll course. shoot the video and the camera will sit in the draw for six months because mm -hmm. it's time to roll out the upgrades to mm. the new website or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's never an ideal situation. And so what we've done is, is provide the turnkey solution for corporate clients in that, you know, you want to do a podcast, we can help you structure it, we mm -hmm. can help you produce it and edit it, and we can help you distribute it. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is hire us. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So so we got together and uh, over the course of about a year and a half, uh, weekly Skype calls, uh, mm -hmm. we we wrote pieces of the book individually wow. and then put it all together and organized it. We did hire a, a couple of people. We hired a professional copy editor to mm -hmm. go through it after we had gone through it and uh, she still found a few things that we needed to correct. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, we hired a professional um, designer to design the book itself. It's a great looking book. You know, I'm looking you. at it right here. I mean, yeah, it's, it's nice. And we also commissioned um, a wonderful, wonderful cartoonist, Rob Cottingham, who lives in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, who Donna knew, um, who created for us some uh, custom, unique, it almost, cartoons about podcasts. It almost looks like The Far Side. <laughs> Who remembers well, The Far he's, Side? His, his series is called Sig A Noise to Signal, mm -hmm. uh, is his series of cartoons that he posts on the web. Um, he's very, very funny. He got the concepts immediately, and there's some wonderful, funny cartoons in the book, which we've also put on the book's website, thebusinessofpodcasting.com. Nice. And oh, so, um, and then we, we hired a cover designer, uh, Val Sana, who did the cover. Um, and packaged it all together in a nice little package, and mm -hmm. uh, we're on the Amazon Kindle, and uh, also available in trade paperback. That's awesome! Great. So yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'm definitely gonna be checking it out. I, I like a Kindle Wonderful. paper myself, but um, so that's pretty interesting. You bring up a point that photographers, let's just say, not all but some, uh, get to, and it's it's a it's a funny thing that someone one time said to me well you know you can make money as a photographer and that's well and good um but you won't really ever make you won't ever really make real money until you realize that you have to make money off of other photographers and it's kind of the same idea in that a lot of times photographers get to a certain point in their career where they start turning into more of an educator than necessarily the you know the the person just taking and clicking the shutter every time and then it, then you get into okay well it's dvds or it's videos or it's some sort of selling material where you're taking your like you said your your expertise in this field and saying okay i will provide it to anyone who would like it or need it in exchange for a rate um whether it's in the form of consulting or in the form of um you know a book or, or anything like that and and that's where a lot of times people get a really big following that's exactly what we thought with the book uh, that we would be doing. You know, mm -hmm. the book is a way of us sharing 10 years or 11 years of combined podcasting experience. Mm -hmm. um, what we found works, what we found doesn't work. Uh, the ancillary services you can provide like consulting and workshops and training and right. handholding and all of that sort of stuff. Um, helping people distribute it. Um, building websites. I, one of the things I've found, I, I've been building websites since the web 
began, you know, <laughs> when people first started building websites, I learned right. how to do it. Um, and I, I didn't really market that as a service until maybe about four or five years ago because mm-hmm. what I found was that we would produce podcasts or video podcasts for clients mm-hmm. and they didn't have a place to put it uh, to, to yeah. adequately show it. <laughs> yeah. We don't want people, from our perspective, we don't want people pointing their listeners or their viewers to YouTube to watch a podcast, particularly if you're trying to persuade people that you have the knowledge or expertise for them to hire you, hire your business right. to mm-hmm. do something for them. You don't want them going to YouTube mm-hmm. where they're going to see um, all kinds of videos that are, you know, keyword related, but have nothing to do with your business. So, right. you know, if you're in an industry that's mildly controversial, you know, prospective clients are going to see your video and then YouTube is going to offer them videos that may be anti your industry. Right. Or right. maybe making fun of your company. Right. And yeah. you just don't want that. You <laughs> There's want to not a lot of control there. Yeah. You want to control that experience. So that means having a good website. And so that's mm-hmm. when, you know, we I got into building websites as an adjunct to making sure that people could publish their podcasts and videos in a in an effective way. Oh, okay. So okay. so the idea is that Podcasting may not be the only thing you do, but it can be one of a group of communication services that you provide, and that's what we talk about in mm-hmm. the book. Very cool. Yeah, because this is here, you know, podcasting case studies and examples, content that works well in a podcast. I'll ask you about that in a minute. Uh, marketing, selling, and pricing your services, offering related services, and of course, the um, you know the the double whammy is uh, podcast monetization. You know, right. So. Right. So that's definitely interesting. Um, I know you, you told us a little bit about earlier about the various services you do. And in terms of, let's just say, uh, being a broadcast person, it, it runs the gamut. Um, but my question is, in the beginning, was it always like interview style or was it just like a, almost like a column where you just kind of were giving your thoughts on certain things? Um, did you always approach it as as more of a you know roundtable discussion type of thing? I think you know radio or podcasting, mm-hmm. and you could talk about them the same way. Right. Uh, often, to me, often works better when it's a conversation. Right. So having multiple voices makes it a little bit more interesting for the mm-hmm. listener. Mm-hmm. So a conversation between you know the three of us, or the conversation between a moderator and a subject matter expert for a corporate podcast seems to be a good model. What yeah. most companies don't have is the time and money to do the longer form journalistic approach, right. which would be, you know, just fabulous for a podcast, you know, going to a company and capturing audio from the factory floor, interviewing people in the factory, uh, and then mixing all that together in a dramatic storytelling kind of way is absolutely wonderful and works well in podcasting, Mm -hmm. but very few of us get to do it because it's extremely time consuming. Right. And you know, when people talk about, Oh, the we're in the golden age of podcasting because of the serial podcast. Mm -hmm. And I I give all props to the people who produce serial, but what people do need to remember is that, you know, it's not just Sarah Koenig sitting in the basement with a microphone. Mm-hmm. It's a team of professional NPR broadcasters, researchers, producers, and editors pulling together a script, pulling together the pieces of sound in the right order and with the right musical bridges, mm-hmm. and making a very interesting and compelling storytelling narrative, which takes 
literally days to yeah. produce one episode. Yeah. Whereas it's relatively easy for us to roll digital tape mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. have a conversation, and you know maybe you cut out the slow parts, <laughs> but really there's very little to edit. It's, right. It's just a conversation. It's three, yeah. three guys sitting around talking. Yeah. And um, that it, that tends to be the way most podcasts go. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see it progress beyond that. I try to do that a little bit in my own work. Um, Tell us more about that. Like, well, what is some uh, interestingly enough, one of the things that's happened to me is my my career has come full circle uh, with the podcasting piece and with the video production piece. Um, I picked up a couple of clients who are news organizations mm-hmm. in the modern digital world. You know, as the print publications kind of go away, new models are springing up. And so uh, two of them are web-based. One of them is a public policy news website here in New Jersey called njspotlight.com. It uh, it was founded by a number of former editors and reporters with print publications like the Newark Star-Ledger, which was the the largest paper in New Jersey, second largest paper, the Bergen Records, the first largest, believe it or not. Um, and so those people got together, started this website with foundation funding and some corporate sponsors to do exactly what they were doing when they were print reporters. They're covering legislative and public policy issues out of the state house in Trenton, mm-hmm. um, just as they did when they were print reporters. And they've established themselves as the go-to source. So part of their portfolio, if you will, in addition to the very deep you know, text stories, I could call them print stories, but it's not, that wouldn't be exactly right. <laughs> right. The, the textual stories they write on their website, they have also done a series of roundtable uh, seminars and conferences, which I've been involved in recording the video so that we can produce a video that goes up on the website after the fact, mm-hmm. and also some audio podcasts. And I've also done some field reporting for them. Uh, they had a grant a couple of years ago when Obamacare was being introduced to uh, do some extra coverage of Obamacare. And one of the stories that we did was a, um, there was a rally that was held, an informational rally in Union City, New Jersey, mm-hmm. to try to reach out to the Hispanic community to right. get people to sign up right. for the affordable care coverage. Um, and so I went up to that and literally covered it as if I was a video reporter. And I've done mm-hmm. similar work for uh, one of my other clients is uh, Globestreet.com, which is a website covering commercial real estate news nationally. My, mm-hmm. my role is to cover uh, commercial real estate news in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And like so, what kind of stuff? Like what, what's selling or what's out there? You know, what um, big spaces it, are going when for? when uh, property owners announce a big lease with a new tenant, or mm-hmm. when they buy and sell buildings, or when there are trends they want to talk about in the market. Um, and what I've done is I've taken the podcasting skills and applied it to the news gathering operation there. So, so is that is it kind of a similar process? Like if you're if you're doing these types of jobs, you just go with your podcast kit. Yeah. And- exactly. I mean, you know, what what you have today uh when you send reporters into the field are what they call backpack journalists or yeah. multimedia journalists. And, and and in fact, you see this in the mainstream media, you know, the reporter for uh, a what what was traditionally a print publication like the Philadelphia Inquirer mm-hmm. is not only expected to go out and take notes and write a story for the newspaper, they're also expected to take some photos with their iPhone, record some audio that's used on the website and so forth and so on. And you see it on television in the Philadelphia market. Uh, you see KYW, the CBS uh, affiliate, uh, on their TV broadcast on Channel 3 
they are also using the radio reporters for their KYW news radio affiliate uh, mm. as on on air on camera reporters. These are people who are radio reporters all uh-huh. their lives. And they're now going hopefully, out and shooting and editing and reporting with video. Hopefully, they don't have a face for radio. Um, you know, I've been I've been told I have a face for radio and a voice for silent movies. And, uh, I'm I'm sticking with that story. But you know, it, it's the ability to use those skills across multiple platforms mm-hmm. is is going to be critical for podcasters. Yeah. And so, you know, recording an interview <laughs> over the phone that can be used with you know a print story um, right. just enhances. And remember, you know, websites are looking at clicks. I get mm-hmm. a report from Globe Street every week showing what stories are getting hits on my pages mm-hmm. and what stories are not. And how's my traffic? Is it up or is it down? And let me tell you, you know, your stomach does a turn when you see red arrows pointing down. <laughs> you know, yellow arrows that are like trending sideways is all right. Green arrows are good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you want to get those. And, and everybody's looking for headlines that are gr- going to grab people's attention right. or content that people will click on and read. Mm-hmm. And so by enhancing it with a video news report, you know, particularly if it's something visual, um, you know, why not tell the story with video? Right, right. And so I'm telling stories um, in, in Newark, New Jersey, a, a couple of months ago, they they opened or they dedicated a uh, warehouse that's going to be an urban farm. Um, there, mm. There's a technology that's called, um, it's called uh, aeroponics. It's sort of like hydroponics, yeah. only they do it with less water. You know, in hydroponics, they have plants floating in water. This is with uh, plants that that they're in a tray with a fabric that's got a nutrient solution in it. And they put these trays in racks that are three stories high inside a warehouse. And they can grow two million pounds of leafy green vegetables a year in a warehouse in an urban industrialized zone in Newark, New Jersey. Wow. And And there's plenty of that around there. You know, and, and... you know, telling people about it is one thing, but showing it to them is, yeah. is another. And when you can show them in video, that's going to get more clicks. And people yeah, are going to watch sure. that and they'll learn something and yeah. you know, maybe get ideas. So, so um, I guess it just goes back to the right tool for the right job. Exactly. Yeah. Right, exactly. But but having the tool set mm-hmm. and being able to just go, you know, seamlessly from, you know, one medium to the other is, um, I, you know, I think it's just essential. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know about Stevie, but I can say I've... Like when DSLRs introduce video, like I have a D, an Nikon D4 and it does video, and uh, and I've I've done some kind of short things um, during like model shoots. You know, I'm like, oh, let me just do a little, you know, whatever, and uh, and I and I start trying to edit it, and I just I just have a panic attack, and I'm like, you know what, I'm good. And when I started learning this, I still have, unfortunately, I still have like hours of video. I could I should have someone cut down for me, but. Um, when I started editing the audio, it was a bit of a learning curve. Still is, but we're honest with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting how already I can say, okay, I have writing and photography, so stills, and now learning the audio aspect, it is pretty nice to say you have a couple more tricks up your sleeve. You have to be able to adapt to whatever the clients need, right? Yeah, and you know, if they need the video, you have to be able to produce it. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, and that is more intensive. I will tell you. you yes. Know, oh, to yeah. get a to get a five minute <laughs> video from that farm groundbreaking in in Newark, um, you know, it was a it's it from where we are sitting today. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a, about an hour and a half ride to Newark. Mm-hmm. It was about a two hour ceremony 
um, interviewing people afterwards, shooting B-roll afterwards, mm-hmm. and then coming back an hour and a half to the studio and copying it all over onto the production system to edit it and then actually editing it. <laughs> um, you know, you're talking about several hours of editing after all of that all travel. Of that, yeah. So you're talking about almost a day's worth of work for five minutes of video. Yeah, mm-hmm. Video is a whole other discipline. If you, do, if mean, you want to do it right, you know, people right. are putting up a lot of raw video. I, I'm really intrigued by um, Periscope. Yeah. Um, I, I've been yeah. using Periscope a, a couple of times lately and surprised at how quickly people jump on when they see that you're going live with something. Yeah, yeah. I just started, I think we talked about that. I just started using it at, at a few of my past shoots mm-hmm. just because I, I never really used it before. It's like, you know, it's a tool. I downloaded it. I tried it out. We were at, a, I forget where we were, somewhere at some gardens in Philly, Bartram Gardens, I think. But it's cool to like share it. You just flip it on. You know, people love seeing the process. People love seeing behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. We have... Um, uh, we were at um, at our synagogue here in Cherry Hill mm-hmm. uh, a few uh, a couple of months ago for uh, the festival called Simchat Torah, which is the uh, it, it's a Jewish festival that commemorates the completion of the reading of the entire Torah scroll. Whoa! And at this ceremony, it's a very joyful ceremony. But one of the centerpieces of it is we unroll the entire scroll and we have people holding it all the way around the sanctuary of the synagogue, so wow. that you can see the entire scroll. And they read the last that's verse. One, that's one long pano shot, right? Exactly. <laughs> and and we they read the last verse, then they go to the other end. And, and they, they read be, the first terrified verse. terrified rolling that back up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so um, in past years, a couple of years ago, I had a video camera with me, mm-hmm. and I videotaped mm-hmm. it and put up a short video of it. And this year, um, we went, and everybody was taking selfies and all right. kinds of stuff. And <laughs> I said, what can I do that would be like that but be a little bit different? And then it dawned on me. I had Periscope on the phone. Mm-hmm. So I fired up Periscope and I started reporting live, and I had about twenty-five people watching within nice. a matter of minutes. Yeah, it's um, you know, you'd be surprised. I was very people surprised. love that stuff. I was very like, surprised. Yeah, first time I used it, I think twenty, twenty-five people. I was like, "What? Yeah, yeah. Why? Why are you watching this?" And, so, I, yeah, and, and somebody are, even <laughs> somebody even tweeted me. They said, "You're allowed to use Periscope in your synagogue." And I said, "You know what? I just fired it up. Nobody, nobody questioned. Yeah, nobody Everybody's taking it. pictures. So yeah, they just imagined it was just taking video or right, something. Exactly. Probably. Right. Yeah, I used it my first time. My brother, I was at the Eagles game this past weekend, and my brother was, uh, you know, jealous. He's also an Eagles fan, and uh, and said, "Hey, how about you Periscope it?" And I was like, "Ah." No, the whole I, game. Yeah, I know, right? I'm like, what no. are you getting a letter from the NFL next oh, yeah. week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So then I was like, you know, I don't know. So I literally, I, I've never used it. I've had it on my phone for months, and uh, and I just said, okay, Bradford got hurt. Sanchez is going in. Let's see what happens. And I just recorded like six minutes, just standing where I, you know, where our seats were, and uh, and yeah, I mean, people I didn't even know were just chiming in, being like, yeah. oh yeah, how's he doing? What what happened to Bradford? All this stuff, and I'm going like. What? Like, yeah, it's amazing, and, <laughs> and you know, and of course, in venues like that, yeah, the, the owners are cracking down. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, it's it remains to be seen whether you'll be able to continue to do that. <laughs> right. Now, either way, it was you know, but I could definitely see how um, we've we've talked about it. How um, in the future, for some of our bigger guests, it would be kind of neat to kind of like tease up uh, an episode coming up, kind of periscoping the process with that person. Um, and I could definitely see how that would be interesting. I toyed with the idea of uh, having the cameras running while we were shooting mm-hmm. today, but you know what? <laughs> I don't have the time to yeah. edit it. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, listen, uh, Steve, uh, thank you for having us here uh, at your at your great uh, studio. It's been great um, 
getting some insight on something that we just started and you've been doing for so long. So I'm not going to lie to you, I'll definitely be picking your brain. Awesome. About all Absolutely. This stuff. Happy to do it. <laughs> yeah. And um, and we're actually, I guess we can tell everyone, uh, going to switch the tables, or turn the tables, I guess you'd say, and uh, and going to be on an episode of your podcast coming up. So I think that's kind of, kind of interesting. I, I think it'll be an interesting perspective. So yeah, for we'll sure. We'll get your side of the story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now let's go back in there and look at all your fun equipment. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Steve, thank you again, and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks a lot. It's been great.